Good morning. I'll uh, give you one guess at what's, what I said when Sam asked me if I could preach. Yes, Lord, right? So that'll make a little more sense as we progress. Uh, my name is Mitch Dobson. Uh, I know many of you. I don't know many of you and look forward to the, uh, to the chance to get to know you better. Um, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of things that I could have brought today, a lot of different uh, teachings. You know, some of, some of the things that I really appreciate most about Jesus' teaching are, are, are really the parables that he taught. And, uh, you know, you can learn a lot from them. He, I, I really enjoy watching Jesus interact with his disciples, interact with the people and when he's teaching and that sort of thing. But it's always interesting to see what he's at work doing. But when Sam asked me to preach for, for Mother's Day, uh, which by the way, Sophie's got a graduation today, so that's why he's, he's out. But um, when Sam asked me to preach uh, for Mother's Day, I consider, considered a lot of different uh, stories, mother's stories, right? But having lost my mom about a year ago, we, we observed one year on Monday of last week, uh, I figured if I preached too much like a Hannah or something like that, we might not be able to get through it with a, without a box of Kleenexes. So um, I wanted to preach on something more, um, uh, uh, you know, specifically uplifting that, that would do at least, you know, I don't want to be selfish here, but at least do my heart good. And so today's message is about the promise and the promise of the resurrection, specifically the benefit and the promise that a mother received from the promise of the resurrection. We're going to talk about the resurrection at Nain. Um, It's a small story. It's about 125 words, five verses. And uh, if you're reading the the book of Luke, uh, you might just read right over it uh, if you're not careful. It's, um, you know, it's, it's like I say, it's a pretty quick story in Scripture. It doesn't seem to get a lot of, of play. Uh, in, in different, uh, you know, you don't hear a lot of messages about the resurrection at Nain. Um, but today we're going to break down this resurrection story. We're going to contrast it and compare it to some of the other resurrection accounts in Scripture. And, it, and I truly hope that it's a blessing today uh, to you. If you're a mother, I hope it's a blessing. If you are the child of a mother, everybody, I hope it's a blessing. Um, so let's, let's pray as we get into it. Lord, we do thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you for uh, the inerrancy of scripture, and we thank you for the confidence, that the boldness that we can have as a result of it. And Lord, I thank you personally for uh, the promise of the resurrection. I thank you for uh, what you're doing in the lives of people and how you're drawing them close to you. You're, you're causing them to live a spiritual walk uh, so they can make an impact to your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you get me out of the way. You know I've spent time in this. You've, you've taught me in this, and I hope to communicate it effectively. But ultimately, Lord, I need you to do the work. I need your Holy Spirit to do the teaching and to, to impact the hearts uh, and the lives that, uh, that hear this message. Uh, without you, I'm, I'm nothing. So I thank you for even that promise. And so, Lord, just be with us during this time today, and we'll give you the honor and glory for you alone are worthy. Amen. So go ahead and turn to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 7 in your Bible or on your app. Uh, the verses will be on the, on the screen, but I'd like you, we'll reference it a couple of different times as we go through, uh, go through. It looks like everybody's got the handout at this point. So Luke chapter 7, uh, pick up in verse 11 through 15, and it came to pass the day after that he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. 
Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much of the uh, people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. And he came and touched the buyer and they that bare him stood still. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And notice this. And he, Jesus, delivered him to his mother. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, this resurrection at Nain. You know, Nain, you know, one of the first things I do, and I was sharing this with, I think, James, uh, Pastor James this week, that I really like to immerse myself in the story to, my, to as much as possible. I don't know if, if it's possible to get the slides on the back uh, screen or not, but that would help me a little bit. Um, but I like to, in, in, you know, ch- kind of just immerse myself in the... Um, in, in, in kind of the event, right, in the, in the situation. Now, Nain is a, a town of Galilee, so this is an area Jesus knew very well. It's an area where he ministered, spent a, a lot of his ministry time uh, there. Even today, uh, there's a city called Nain, or potentially even Nain, I'm not sure the proper pronunci- pronunciation. It's in the same, as far as we can tell, in the same uh, location, or Nin is the the. Arabic pronunciation. It's a, it's a small city. Now, what you're actually looking at is a shot across the Jezreel Valley, and it's a little hard to see, but just to the left of the open area on the side of the foothill, just below the tree line, that is the city of Nain. The area below it and to the right is actually our other um, uh, other uh, housing areas for a, what appears to be an industrial complex there. But that is the city of Nain. Uh, even today, it only has about 2,000 people in it. It's a small town. Um, the wooded area that I referenced just above the town is actually a preserved forest area, and it's an attraction for bicyclists and hikers. I would actually encourage you at some point to maybe Google it, check it out. Again, I think there's, there's um, color or perspective to be gleaned by looking at, at, at these places and, and even talked with Deb uh, Mulder about uh, the trip to Israel in the past and if, if uh, they'd ever gotten to, to Nain. But um, it, it's important, I think, to get some perspective on that. Uh, no wonder the word means beauty. I mean, you're, you're sitting right at the base of a foothill or you're right at the, the, at the base of a hill, rather, a mountain. You've got this beautiful attraction, you know, for bicycles. And, and hikers, beautiful flowers on the hill, uh, it, you know, different, different times and seasons. So again, it makes sense that it's, it's beauty. Another interesting fact, actually, this picture, if, if the internet is accurate, so I'll just let me throw that out there. If the internet is accurate, I don't know if you know this, but in some cases you can tie where the picture is taken to the Google map. And so apparently this picture was taken on a lookout across the Jezreel Valley, about a mile outside the city of Nazareth, or the town of Nazareth. That's how close Jesus grew up. Now, I think they zoomed in a little bit, you know, probably, you know, took a little bit of a good picture, but it's only about five miles from Nazareth to to Nain. This is this is Jesus' stomping grounds, for lack of better terms. There's no reason to believe necessarily that Jesus knew this family, although we can't eliminate that possibility. Uh, it sounds like the, the man was maybe a little younger uh, than the Lord, so I'm not sure I would call them uh, co- you know, contemporaries from an age perspective. 
But as the crow flies, being only five miles away, just across the Jezreel Valley, which was probably and still is farmland today, uh, probably not a lot of settlements there. They would generally try to use the the land as efficiently as possible. There's reason to believe that Jesus knew this family, knew of this family. They knew him, that they they had mutual friends, something. I don't know. I don't want to put too much into the scripture and too much into the interpretation of of the the conditions around it, but I think it's important. Also, uh, there's just off to the right, just kind of around the mountain, if you will, is another town uh, called uh, that, that the, the, uh, the uh, historical town of Shunem. And that will be important later and I'll reference it. So again, it's just around the corner. So keep that in mind. So I've kind of used interchanged city and town. The reality is it's a, it's a pretty small town with only 2,000 people. I don't know if anybody here grew up in a town of 2,000 people, but that's small, right? It's very small, right? So this next slide, this is the Google map, the aerial, if you will, picture of Nain. Now, it was surprising, I was surprised when I only saw, you know, because it'll tag grocery stores and points of interest, right, on Google Maps. So I was surprised when there were two grocery stores, maybe three, I don't remember, just a couple of grocery stores and one gas station. That's actually what triggered, I was like, wow, this really is a small town. I didn't see a blinking light, maybe there is, I don't know, but (laughs) come to find out, the modern day town is small. The old town was probably small, and we'll see some reference to that back when we look in Luke chapter 7. And so I measured the distance across the, the town, and, and unfortunately, it's, it's washed out, the map is washed out a little bit. I mean, but you're seeing individual structures there, right? And so the map is supposed to show the overlay of the size approximately from 39th Street, one block north of us, to 43rd Street, and from Maine to Gillum is approximately the size of this town today. That's how small it is. Like, some of you even kind of responded when I said, if you grew up in a small town of 2,000 people, y'all knew each other's business, right? Or at least a lot of each other's business. I can't help but think the people in this town knew this widow's business. And that's probably why they were coming out to help her. And again, I can't help but think with the proximity to Nazareth that Jesus knew some of these folks. So in order to further understand the context of the story, we should do a little, a brief flyover of the different resurrections uh, of individuals in in Scripture. So the next slide is actually a chart that you have, I believe, on the back of your notes. You don't have anything to fill out on that. You're probably going to be flipping back and forth a little bit if, if you're into that kind of thing. I'm very pictorial. I like to see things structured. We're actually going to be talking about this far left kind of brown tan, the widow of Nain's son, uh, the resurrection. But these are the eight resurrections of individual people setting aside the Lord Jesus Christ and setting aside those that resurrected at the time of his death and burial resurrection. Um, In Matthew 27, it says, Behold, uh, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and uh, the earth did quake and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and he went into the holy Sy- and, and went into the holy city and appeared to many. So setting aside the Lord Jesus Christ, very specific resurrection, doctrinally and practically, and the, the masses that we really don't have a lot of detail, these are our eight 
resurrections that we're going to look at uh, in, in this morning, at least just touch on. Now, uh, again, you shouldn't have, you can make notes obviously all day long on your, on your handout, but you shouldn't have any fill in the blanks there. So there, notice there are three Old Testament resurrections, three recorded in the Gospels, obviously one of them being this resurrection at Nan, and two in the book of Acts. The individual resurrected is at the top of your chart. Now the next row is the person I'm going to go with that's responsible for the resurrection. So Elijah has one. Elisha has two. Interestingly, the second one, Elisha, of Elijah, he's dead and he's buried himself. His bones are minding their own business in the grave. They chuck in another guy who's died and that dude gets resurrected. Whoa. Um, so, uh, you know, but, but that's, so I, I'm going to call Eli, uh, Elisha responsible for that, right? Uh, we see, obviously, these three that Jesus did, the, the one, the, the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter in Lazarus, probably those other two are the ones you're probably more familiar with. Certainly, Lazarus, uh, that, that story of the resurrection is, is, is very well known, and then Peter and Paul each have one recorded in the book of Acts. But one thing I want to focus on for just a second is this center row. The center row. These are the folks who get to experience or witness, at least some of the folks that get to experience or witness this, their individual resurrection firsthand. Notice five of the eight are close family, and then the other two are friends and, and, and church. So you've got mother, you've got parents, You've got uh, mother and parents again in the Gospels. You've got the siblings in Lazarus. You've got friends of Tabitha. She was a, a little bit older lady, so you've got her friends. And then you've got the church witnessing uh, Eutychus. So, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me that resurrections generally surround those or are surrounded by those who are, are uh, their loved ones are present. Now you say, well, Mitch, that's a little bit of a duh, because in some cases these folks aren't even buried yet, and, and you know, funeral, funeral processes, etc., are going to bring those around. And I think, yes, I'm not sure, you know, which kind of comes first there, but Jesus chooses to, to inject himself in these moments, and the, the close family relationships cannot be avoided. The, the next row on your chart is the response of the, the, the one who was dead. You'll see revival. You'll see opened eyes, you'll see uh, standing, sitting up, speaking, arising, walking, and new life. There is no coincidence, no coincidence at all, that these are the tangible aspects of the new life in Christ. You can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. These are the things that Christ has raised us to while we still go about in our, in our, in our flesh and bones. But more on that later. So you might, again, you might want to flip back and forth a little bit as we progress through this. I'll reference a couple of different things. But it, so, so we're going to talk really about four, four divisions of this resurrection at Nain. So as we jump in, uh, you know, back into the text, we'll come to our first point. And, and that's literally this incredible loss. The woman... The mother in this story has suffered incredible loss. I, I don't know if you noticed it when, even as we've talked about it, that according to Luke chapter 7, we see that she's a widow, so she's already lost her husband, and this is her only son. It's almost like, I mean, the, the, the quote is, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Like, that's kind of, like, everything she's got 
all of her important relationships are gone. And it's almost like the death of her son is adding insult to injury. She was probably relying on him for provision. She, you know, she probably needed his income to literally survive. And we're not, we're not privy to her response to God about the second and only other super important person in her life. Her husband's gone. Her son's gone. We don't know her response to God. We don't know the quietness of her heart. We don't know what she verbalized when she got the news that her son had died. But we can learn from others in Scripture who've gone through similar uh, situations. So, so when we look at um, this, this response, your response to, life is imp- uh, to, to loss in life is important. Your response is important. Notice Naomi and Job both suffered similar losses to this woman. More similar for Naomi maybe than Job. But Job also suffered additional loss as well. Beyond just, you know, Naomi loses her her husband and her two kids. Job loses technically more, and his wife, for all intents and purposes, can't be relied upon. So I would argue he he lost more in addition to his his uh, his his wealth. So so if if we notice in in the book of Ruth and in, in chapter one, I've pulled out some some specific verses here, uh, and, and and notice in Imelech, Elimelech. Um, Naomi's husband died and she was left and her two sons. So, similar story. Widow. And Malon and Chilion uh, died also, both of them, in verse 5. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. I would argue parallel. And notice in verse 13, when she's interacting with her daughters-in-law, She says, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Meaning if I could have more kids, would you stay for them, stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes. And notice this, that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. She actually attributes the loss, the loss in a I mean, she made bad, her and her husband made bad decisions leaving uh, Jerusalem and, and, or I'm sorry, Bethlehem and going uh, uh, to Moab, but, but she's attributing the loss to, to God. And in verse 20, and she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt, dealt very bitterly with me. That is literally her reaction to her loss. She's bitter at God. I appreciated Maria's comments uh, earlier with respect to, to how the Lord used camp in her life. She was in a place of bitterness. I, I get it. We all, we all have those times. We all have those seasons. And if you don't think you do, it's probably just because you haven't identified it. But notice in verse 21, I went out full, questionable, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. The Lord did this. The Lord killed my husband. The Lord took my two sons. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me? Like, you know, we joke, we joke often about, you know, Adam's response to God was it was the woman you gave me. Literally, Naomi is backing up the dump truck of her emotions and her baggage at the feet of the Lord and saying, it's your fault. And look at this last, and the, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. Like, this is God's doing. Well... I mean, God allows things for sure, but, but note, notice how Naomi views what happens in the context of what God is doing against her. His hand is off of her. He dealt bitterly. He brought her home empty. 
She's a wreck. And it won't be until later in the story when things start falling into place a little bit, when her circumstances improve, that she has a better outlook on God. Please don't do that. Please don't make your relationship on, uh, with God conditional on the environment, even the loss, the death of a loved one. God doesn't work that way except to draw you potentially closer to Him. I get that we get mad at God. It happens. I was in a car wreck that led to my salvation and I can drive you to the place and I can almost stand in the same orientation where I held my hands up to heaven and yelled, God, what do you want from me? We, it's, a, it's a very normal, very natural reaction to put the unexplained, the, the, the perspectives that you don't see on God and, and honestly, it's not fair. And it's probably setting you back in your walk with the Lord rather than moving you forward. I'm not particularly proud of how I've blamed God for some of the things that have gone on in my life, especially when I was the one that created the conditions that caused the loss. It's exactly what Naomi did. She went out full, and that's why I said questionable. She left the place where she was supposed to be. God, you know, things happen. Whether God will specifically cause them or not is, is obviously a, a, another, another message or more, and, and arguably a little up for debate. But ultimately, she, she gets frustrated at God. But notice Job. Job doesn't do this. Job, look in, in Job ch in, uh, chapter 1 and verse 20 and 22, pretty common verses that, that people generally know if they spent much time in Scripture. Then Job arose and rent his mantle after he gets the news, the repetitive news that he suffered loss and suffered loss and suffered loss. Notice this, he shaved his head, so he was a good-looking guy. He shaved his head, <laughs> fell down on the, upon the ground and worshipped and said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not. Now, notice this last little bit. He didn't just not sin. Sorry for the double negative. He also didn't charge God foolishly. Don't charge God foolishly. I know, I know when, some, when, you get a, when you get news that hits you in the gut, the tendency for Mitch Dobson is to charge God foolishly. And it's not necessarily, I'm not in my, quote, right mind at that moment to kind of put those emotions in check and make sure I've got it all arranged and not charge God foolishly, but Job did it. He did it because of his walk in the Lord. So this begs a question, will your loss make you better, or I'm sorry, bitter toward God, or will, will you purpose to get better with God? You literally have this choice. You can be Naomi or Job. Will you blame God, or will you look for what he's trying to accomplish through the potentially bad situation? Look, I'm not saying that you have to just say, oh, look, my husband and now my only son have died. Woohoo! right? Like, that's not the point. But you can still not charge God foolishly. Do you trust him? This, is, this comes down to faith. Do you trust him? 
I think it's the Casting Crown song, something to the effect of the, your world's not falling apart, it's falling into place. God's, God's working out these details to bring you to a closer relationship with him. So this brings us to our second, uh, second concept in the, in, in the resurrection at Nain. And so we move from incredible loss to inconsolable pain. Luke records that Jesus tells the woman to weep not. Now, after it, it indicates that he had compassion on her, and, and this, uh, the sorrow obviously triggers Christ's intervention. He sees this woman, again, potentially knows at least maybe of the family, maybe knows the family. He had compassion on her. I'm willing to bet one of his disciples, that we, we kind of brushed over it, but there was a good number of disciples following him. I'm willing to bet one of them knew this individual or this family, that he had compassion. And he said, and he tells her to weep not. Now, look, this is not a get up and rub dirt on it kind of statement, right? And, and sometimes I think Jesus gets a bad rap in situations like this because that sounds kind of aloof. It sounds like, well, how can he have compassion and then look at this woman who's lost everything and, and he's like, don't, don't cry. Like, you know, I mean, that makes a good song, right? You're not supposed to cry, in situations like this. But what he does is he's, he, he, he tells her, through this, he's giving her a promise, but literally not consoling her. He doesn't put his arm around her and say, it's going to be okay. He says, weep not. And that's pretty important. So weeping is normal. It's a, a normal reaction to pain, emotional pain that we have. Every one of us, you know, has these common reactions, and, and it's, it's interesting, that kind of separates us from animals. When we have emotional pain, that we would weep, right? It also gives, uh, gives us a little bit of insight into the shortest verse. I, I did memorize the shortest verse in Scripture about Jesus weeping, right? Jesus wept, right? So, so Jesus does this too. He's not... He's sending a message. He isn't chastising her. He's not admonishing her. Be careful when you minister to people in times of loss. It's not, like, don't step in it and go, weep not, don't cry, it's going to be okay. Let them work through that. So her sorrow triggers Christ's intervention, and and while this is very, uh, very normal, given the, very, the, pro, the burial protocols uh, at the time uh, that Jesus encounters them, they're literally carrying him to the grave, right? He's on the buyer or, or this platform, and we'll, we'll touch on that in a moment. He probably died the day before, the young man, probably died the day before. And so the loss of the loved one can be ranked as one of the highest stressors that you can experience. And again, Jesus is not chastising her. He's not, he's not, well, what he is doing, he's affronting a tradition called sitting shiva, where people sit quietly and just mourn with someone, which is actually what Job's friends do at the beginning of the book of Job. They don't speak until Job speaks. Jesus, in a, in a, in a breach, if you will, of traditional protocol, speaks first. And notice some of these other folks that, that have cried or wept in Scripture. Abraham cried for Sarah in Genesis 23. Joseph, when he's reconnected with his brothers, after all the emotion tied to that of what they did to him, how he is now in a position, uh, look at this, and Joseph made haste in, in Genesis 43:30, for his bowels did yearn upon his brothers, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. He literally was able to hold it in until he could be alone. 
In Ecclesiastes, we see that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. And the parallelism here is, is that Ecclesiastes says when you, weep, uh, you weep when you mourn and you laugh when you dance, which actually, if I were to dance, you would laugh. So that's how that works. But, but it's a parallel. When you mourn, it's okay to weep. We're even encouraged, actually, in Romans 12, 15, to weep along those that are grieving, right? Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. James encourages us to, that, it, that it's going to happen. He, like, be afflicted and mourn and weep. It's okay. It's okay. This is very natural. Not necessarily the design of God, but it's very natural in the state we're in. But notice the wonderful promise that weeping will come to an end. This is a great promise. Weep not. Here in Isaiah, we see three verses uh, that, that, are, that you know, he's specifically dealing with the nation of Israel about. And he says in, in Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death and victory, amen, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from, uh, from off all faces. In chapter 30, in verse 19, thou shalt weep no more. It's a promise. Isaiah 65 and verse 19, and I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people and the voice of weeping shall, no more, or shall be no more heard in her nor the voice of crying. There's coming a day when we won't have to cry anymore. I'm looking forward to that. I'm not, I'm, I'm my wife knows, my kids probably know, I'm a yeah, I'll go to a funeral with somebody that I'm just supporting. I'm, I'm supporting the, the person that I'm there for, right? I, I maybe didn't even know the person that died, and I get choked up and I cry. And I'm not saying I'm more spiritual. I'm saying I'm more emotional. But I am so looking forward to the day when no more tears will come out of my eyes. Those almost exact same promises that were directed at Israel are directed, in fact, to all of us. If you look at the, the next slide in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 17, for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters again, amen, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And I've heard it taught that that's because people will, be, will have been crying, potentially judgment seat, potentially, uh, you know, seeing what's going on. I, I don't know. I, I didn't study it out. I don't know that I have a strong opinion about that. But I can take great comfort in Revelation 21 and verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. But notice the, the second part. And there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. Literally, the thing that drives crying, the thing that drives weeping will be gone. We, don't have to, we won't have to deal with it. I'm looking forward to that day. All of this is kind of encapsulated in these two little words that Jesus says to her, weep not. Again, it's not a, it's not a bad admonishment. It's not a, a chastisement. All of this is, is in play just right where this young man is laying on, the, on a platform being carried to his grave and Jesus looks at her, has compassion and says, don't weep. Because there's, you know, I just heard that the graduation this week for, for the City Union Mission, one of the guys in their testimony said, where God is, there is hope. Wow! Where Jesus is, there is hope. Weep not. Well, I'm getting ready to bring something to you, a gift to you. 
that is going to be better than any Mother's Day gift. How does Jesus execute on this promise to end her pain? Through this improbable encounter. The next point, this improbable encounter. Jesus does three things, and we'll, we'll touch on each of them. He, he, he address each of them. He touches, he stops the process, and he speaks. First, he touches. And the, the family probably is poor, given the, the nature of the town, given the situation that the husband has died, didn't have life insurance back then, the, the son is probably working to, to substantiate the family. At least they probably weren't rich right? But this funeral procession is very typical, certainly was typical of the day. There would be this buyer, as I mentioned, it's kind of a platform where people can get on either side. So today we generally place people in a casket and the casket is borne by pallbearers, right? So in here, I don't know if they would still be called something the equivalent of a pallbearer, but they would put the, the deceased on a, on a platform and it would be, and they would generally drape it in a, in a in some sort of shroud or or covering, and then they would carry it, and they would carry it, and that would lead the the funeral procession. Still see it in some cultures today, in in, in different parts of the world where the those who are deceased, especially those who have any notoriety, those are probably the ones you might see on the news or something like that. They're literally placed on a platform and carried for burial. It's a, it's a bit of an honor, right? It's a bit of a, everybody's focused on them. It's, it's kind of the same way that when, when a funeral procession, you know, drives through the, through the town, people get out of the way, or at least they kind of used to. I don't feel like they do that as much anymore. But try to get out of the way. It's, a, it's kind of a, a position of, of respect and reverence. Jesus walks right up to this thing and touches it. And touches it. Not that there's anything, I guess, it's not the ark, He's, you know, it's not like he can't touch it, but it's just kind of interesting to me. Now, Jesus' touch is, is very, very powerful, right? Um, he, it, you, know, and, uh, you know, Lord, forgive me, but it's not like Jesus has this clunky superpower where he, like, touches something and boom, it comes to life, right? I mean, that's not how it works. Jesus touched plenty of things and it didn't, you know, it didn't come to life. This is, this is... This is the virtue flowing through him. Notice in Matthew 8 and 3, Jesus, uh, verse 3, and Jesus put forth his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be thou clean, right? He's, he's indicating that is in align, uh, alignment or in concordance with his will, and immediately the leprosy was cleansed. In 8.15, and he touched her hand and the fever left her. She rose, look at this, and ministered unto them. It's for a purpose. Uh, 9.29, then he touched, uh, touched he, their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it unto you. So there's always this just amazing component where Jesus is teaching in the midst of his miracles. And Jesus came in verse, uh, Matthew 17, verse 7, came and touched him and said, arise, be not afraid, right? We continue in, in, in 20 and 34. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received sight. But look at this. And they followed him. Mark 1, 41, and Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. Similar pa passage. He took from, uh, him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears and spit and touched his tongue. We're going to talk about awkwardness in just a second. That's awkward. Um, 
And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. And in uh, 22:51, and Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus' touch is really interesting. The only resurrection that Jesus is a part of, of the three, where he touches is Jairus' daughter. If you wanted to make a note on the, the chart on, your, on the backside of, of your page. But there is Jairus' daughter. So, so here he doesn't even touch the deceased young man. He touches the buyer or the, the platform, the casket, if you will. And notice what it does. It causes the procession to stop. It stops the procession. That's the next. So, so I just talked about awkward, right? So in, in verse 14, there is a colon. It says, and he came and touched the buyer, colon, and they that bear him stood still. That means that that's conditional. They stopped because he touched it. He didn't just, like, I don't know why, but some, I, I see kids all the time, they'll walk along a fence and they'll touch something or a counter or, a, you know, at a store. I don't know, you, maybe you do it, I don't know. But, but it's not like that. Jesus walks up and he touches it and they stop. Like, what's going on here? That's a breach of etiquette, right? So it's going straight to a double dog dare. Or no, straight to a triple dog dare. Right? Some of you know that I'm talking about. It was a slight breach of etiquette. So, so he touches the buyer and they stand still. His, actual, his actions literally stopped what's going on. Now, can you imagine for a moment if you're at a funeral of a, of a loved one, a friend, and some dude walks in and interrupts the funeral? Like, awkward, right? I mean, what in the world is going on here? Fortunately, awkward, Jesus doesn't allow awkwardness to get in the way of ministry. He actually embraces it. He embraces it. In some cases, he like, spits and puts it on people's ears and tongues and eyes and stuff, right? Like, we joke about that. Some of you even laughed, but oh, to be the man that Jesus did that to. Like, like I'm not worthy enough to, to latch his his sandal, right? But oh, that, that, that he would take the time to invest in me in, in that way. So some of the best times I've had in ministry, I'm not going to lie, is where I just embrace the awkwardness. I just embrace it. Now, I don't create it. Like that's not the, well, we'll talk more about that in a second, but, but I've gotten into the, into the, uh, the, the path or the, 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 the habit of just identifying it. This morning, I think it was Chris that I was hugging. I, I remember somebody, or maybe it was Will, and he was making a, a gesture with his hand and I thought he was like giving me the bro hug thing. So it was this kind of awkward moment. So we just hugged. I'm like, well, that was awkward, right? Like, just embrace it. Just know where the love comes from and just embrace it. And, and I've even gotten to the point where when I identify it, I look people in the eye and I say, I'm sorry for the awkwardness. <laughs> but I love you, or but, whatever the situation is, right? And Jesus is rebuked several times in Scripture for his awkwardness, for his breaches of etiquette, for his breaches of protocol, for his breaches of, of, of uh, tradition. But you know what? He just walks right on through it because he's getting to the point 
He knows in his mind what's going to happen here. That young man is going to resurrect. And of course, if those men that were carrying the buyer knew that, they would want to stop. So Jesus touches the buyer and causes them to stop. Awkwardness is kind of a pattern in these resurrections. Notice in, in Elijah, I, again, I've joked with people, I think I joked with some of you this week when I was talking about this, like Elijah lays on the dude, this kid, to bring him back to life. Like, can you imagine? That's like the stuff of a sitcom where somebody like walks in and is like, you know, like, but he resurrects the kid, right? One of the kids res- that resurrects like sneezes seven times. Like, what's up with that? You want some Kleenex? You need to blow your nose? Like, one of the deceased, as I mentioned, is just touching Elijah's bones. I bet if I had a pile of bones here, some of you would be like, I ain't touching that, right? It's awkward. Twice, <laughs> twice, everyone's kicked out of the house, and they're like, what's going on here? One, there's a d- debate about decomposition. Lord, he stinketh by now. You can't heal him, Right? Another one, when Paul resurrects Eutychus, like, the passage is almost nonchalant, and then Paul, like, goes to eat. It's like, I'm hungry, I've been preaching all night. Anybody got a sandwich? So sometimes awkwardness is the byproduct of good ministry. It just is. Now, don't get me wrong, just because it's awkward doesn't make it right. Like, you shouldn't go into a situation and think, I'm going to make this spiritual by being awkward. That's not how it works, right? Your spirit makes you peculiar. Being peculiar doesn't make you spiritual. It's a one-way street. There was a young man that uh, I went to a camp years ago, and and the message included uh, this being peculiar, and he took a necktie, and he tied it around his head a la Rambo, I guess, and he was like, I'm being peculiar, and I'm like, no, you're being a dork. Like, that that doesn't make you spiritual. Addressing someone's spiritual need when they don't know they they have a spiritual need makes you peculiar or awkward. Like, having the hard conversation with someone is what makes it awkward. Notice Jesus then speaks... Here are his specific, his his words are very specific. He says, young man, I say unto thee, arise. Some speculated, kind of like when Jesus calls Lazarus by name to come out of the grave, that if he doesn't somehow direct his supernatural ability to resurrect, if he doesn't say Lazarus, all the people in the graves would come forward. Maybe. He's certainly powerful enough he overcome, uh, to overcome that much death, right? We saw that many of the bodies of the saints arose around the time of his death, uh, burial, and resurrection. So I know he has the power, but I don't think like, we can catch Jesus in a, like a, in a glitch here. But, but I think he has more control of his words than that. But notice what he does say. He says, I say unto thee, listen, this is the Lord speaking. It's important to note that Jesus spoke. He didn't just touch. He didn't, he actually verbalized his desire. And he, that same voice that brought forth creation, that, that heals, that casts out demons, that calms winds and waves, that calls us out to faith to walk on those very waves, gives us direction, elicits peace, calls his bride home, also causes the dead to rise. I say unto thee, 
arise. Wow. He spoke. And that brings us to our last point. The inspirational deliverance. Notice the icon. It's, it's, meant, to, it's meant to be a spoken word in, in the mother here, the open arms of the mother. But let's unpack this just a little bit. Obviously, this young man is delivered from the grave, at, at least temporarily. No reason to believe that he's still alive today, right? So, like, eventually he died a second time. But much like the T-shirt that says, not today, Satan, he could have had one that said, not today, grave. Like, he's not going there today. He has a very real, but also very temporary reprieve from the grave. Okay? He's not going there today, but he will end up there again. And did end up there again. He became ashes and dust. So, so this is a picture This resurrection is a picture of the new life we have in Christ. I mentioned all those things along the bottom on your chart that point to the new life that we have in Christ and the power of his salvation. But notice in John 5.23, or 5.25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Wow. We have that promise. I have that promise for the loved ones that have gone before me. You can rely on that exact same promise. Ephesians 2, 1 1 and 5. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were ticking. You were still walking. Your heart was going. You were still breathing air. But you were dead. You were just dead in trespasses and sins. And even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. Literally, folks, we've gone, if you are saved this morning, you've gone through this exact same transformation that this young man did on this buyer. Ephesians 5.14, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. That is not limited to just a handful, three in particular, that Jesus resurrects. No, no. That's the church. That's the promise that we have in Christ. In Colossians 2, 13, And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, notice, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so there's a number of other pictures of how Christ conquered sin and death. And I would argue that this humble five-verse, about 125-word resurrection is actually the prototype. And notice that it's similar, and we don't have a ton of time to go through this, but it's similar. It has something in common with all the other seven resurrections. The widow's son at Zarephath, the mom was in the same situation. She was a widow, had a son, and it also says in, the, in the, the, that story that he delivered her under, uh, delivered that he was delivered, delivered the child to her, I think is how it said. The Shunammite woman's son, I, in proximity. Do you remember the, the, the picture? And I said, just off the screen is the town of Shunem. Like literally, within a couple of miles from each other, two of the eight resurrections that are recorded in Scripture happened. Like that's a good zip code to be from. The man buried with Elisha. They were both in the funeral or burial proceedings were underway. 
Jairus' daughter, that, they, that Jesus bo- commanded both of them to arise. In Lazarus, that they were both prepared for, for, for burial, right? Lazarus in, uh, in his, in his uh, garments that didn't allow him to, to, to move well, and this young man on this, on this buyer. And Tabitha, and that they both sat up. And Eutychus, and that they both were young men. That this is, I would argue, this, this resurrection at Nain that when I shared with a few folks this week that I was preaching, they went, what? Like, they didn't even remember the story. And I'm not mad at them. It's just like this kind of non-big deal in Scripture, but it's a big deal. But notice the difference. This is the only one where the resurrected speaks. We don't know what he said. He may have praised the Lord. He may have thanked him. He might have just been like, like a good cartoon. <coughs> What's going on, right? I don't know what happened. I, I don't know what he said. I don't know who he said it to. I don't know if he was talking to the Lord, if he talked to, looked around for, for somebody he knew. Like, why are you guys carrying me? I, I don't know. But what I do know is that he was alive again. And speaking gave testimony to that. And Christ has made a way for you to beat the grave. Yeah, you'll go if the Lord doesn't, doesn't return. You're going to go to the grave. You'll probably, chances are, you'll probably still die a natural death. But we can be raised to new life in him even today. You have a choice in this moment. You'll give, you, we will give you a chance to act on that, but there's one more deliverance that I want to talk about before the invitation, and that's the deliverance to his mother. The account is clear in that after he sits up and he spake, the account said he was delivered to his mother. He was resurrected to familiar arms. The Greek word delivered here literally means to give over to one's care to entrust or commit. When somebody's given new life, care is necessary. Who better than mom? The church. And I'm not trying to supplant the mother, the role of the mother on Mother's Day, but mom doesn't take care of the spiritual rebirth. The church does, the bride of Christ. That is the role of the church. And, and maybe with a special emphasis on the discipler, we don't know the details of this re- reuniting of the mother and son, just that Jesus delivers him. But I expect that heaven will be a little bit like this. I don't know that. And maybe it's just a good warm fuzzy. But chances are he looked at himself, he gave her a hug, and she took him home. It's interesting because tradition would say that the young man would have been buried in the clothes he died in. If that was some sort of injury, if a rock fell on him or he was you know, kicked by a horse or something, I don't know, like, I, I don't know, any number of things. If he died, literally his clothes would have been bloodstained and he would have been nece- it would have been necessary for his mother to take him home and tend to him. So we see uh, the Savior step in and pull this person from the grave. And while Hebrews 11 isn't specifically referencing this woman, but within the context of the Hall of Faith, we see this very concept. Hebrews 11.35 says that women in the Hall of Faith receive their dead to life again. Wow. I do believe it's referencing those Old Testament women, but the hope is a better 
resurrection. Look at this. That they might obtain a better resurrection. This young man maybe got a few more years out of this wonderful miracle. But you can have eternal life. What a glorious day. What a, what a wonderful picture of how the Lord can want to stop you and maybe have a little bit of awkward, but he wants to resurrect you to new life. I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed and the praise team can come up. And, and I just want to address this. Like, you may, you may be going through life, living life, not realizing that death is on your doorstep. I'm sure this woman didn't expect her son to die. Maybe he had some sort of condition, but she didn't think about it going into the situation. You are not promised tomorrow. You have a decision to make. People pass into eternity all the time, and and this resurrection is a beautiful picture of how you can have new life in Christ. How Christ can in, in interject himself in your, your situation and resurrect you to that new life. And you know what? You'll talk about it. You'll testify of it. It would have been a sad day if the funeral procession just would have kept going and this young man would have been buried and tears would have flowed and... But Jesus wanted to do a great work. And by offering eternal life, in some of the very verses that we, that we looked at, Jesus is wanting to do the same thing to you. But the problem is you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And without a Savior, you're destined to an eternity in hell. He wants to do an amazing work. I would encourage you, if you have never ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins, if you've never asked for His blood to be applied to your sins, and you've never sought Him out to be your Savior, if you've never understood the situation of sin and righteousness, I would beg you in just a few minutes when we begin the, um, the invitation to come forward. There'll be people up here that would love the opportunity to, 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 to break through the awkwardness of whatever it is you've got going on to deal with the very real issue of a resurrection in your life. Maybe you've lost someone. Maybe you are bitter at God. Maybe you're more like Naomi than Job because you're mad at God. Oh, God wants to do an amazing work in your life. He wants to give you a perspective that he is at work. And Christian, if you in fact are saved and are bitter at God, I would also beg you to come forward to pray with someone about that to get it dealt with, to get back on the right path with the Lord. And ultimately, the folks that are, are resurrected into new life spiritually and the folks that get their relationship with God right can minister together side by side and can go and take the Great Commission and do it all over again. Lord, we do thank you.